Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oval Roach. Why don't you mind your business? Oh, we're, we're on? <laughs> we, are, we are live. They caught that. They caught that. I'm interrogating the host here. Okay, welcome to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my interrogator, producer, and co-host, Chris Morales. Yes, sir. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in and speak to us. If you want to just listen to the show, you can go to our show website. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Or you can just listen to the show via the call in line if that's your only means, by all means. Do it. Let it happen. Well, I guess we we can't start without talking about Muhammad Ali. Oh, man, no. Can't. So I'm a tad older than you. Just a tad. Uh, My first knowledge of seeing, hearing of Muhammad Ali, of course, was in the mid-70s. I was young, new to the country, and all I remember is seeing him on uh, ABC's Wild World World of Sports. Uh, him, Howard Cosell, and their famous bantering and, and, you know, the interviews that they had and so on and so forth. And, of course, all of the, if you can imagine in the New York sports papers, the build-up to the fights and so on and so forth. Uh, but, again, I was very young. And all I remember feeling and thinking to myself was, man, this guy brags a lot. <laughs> was a talker, and huh? knowing that uh, at least just from you know my little small little nuclear family and how we were raised that that wasn't something that you did and so without of course knowing anything about him didn't know anything about sports back then and no sports at, at all I didn't like him all right because he just not, he was you know a braggart as my <laughs> father said okay? yeah sure and of course as I grew matured and learned um, came to admire. Muhammad Ali, uh, as I read 
and then seen through uh, video his whole his whole story. Um, and I will watch the same Ali, you know, documentary over and over and over and over and over again. I, I can never get enough of them. So when word came that he passed on Friday, selfishly to myself, I said, this weekend, all weekend is going to be nothing, yeah, but nothing but Ali documentaries. And who did you first get word from, by the way? Um... Don't lie. There, there Don't was lie a posting. Here. Oh well, yeah, you. Yes. Texted indeed. me, asked me. Well, how did you phrase the text? Uh, I forget. I think I just might have said, you know, wow, Muhammad Ali, unbelievable. Right, and I said, like why? What happened? Yeah, right, yeah. <clears throat> so indeed. And I remember when I told after you told me what happened, I said to my wife, and I said, you know, good for him. Good for him, because um, even though te- technically he wasn't in pain, at least that's what he said, but um, he had suffered a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. In the later, the later years. Right. And um, no reason for him to experience uh, a degraded quality of life, if you will, to a certain degree. So... Uh, good for him. He he, you know. He he accomplished and and made his mark. And that's that. Yeah. When was your first uh, experience? <clears throat> well, um, so I was born well after his last fight, or at least I was in infancy mm-hmm. um, during during his last fight. So the way I grew up to know who Muhammad Ali was or, or hear about him um, was just through watching sports as I grew up. And, you know, you hear people talk about, um, you know, the greats of the past, mm-hmm. whether it be baseball players, basketball players. It seemed like whatever realm, football, baseball, basketball, Muhammad Ali would be brought up mm-hmm. because he his character and his personality kind of trans, transcended any one individual sport. Um, so growing up, my grandfather had talked to me about him and who he was, um, not only as just, you know, obviously a really phenomenal boxer, but kind of a polarizing political figure mm-hmm. as well in the community. Um, so my grandfather talked to me a little bit about it. If I can remember correctly, even in grade school, I think I remember teachers like he would be brought up in history mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Um, but then just being a being an avid sports fan growing up and watching ESPN, you would see highlights or you would hear about him. Or if you ever watched a modern boxing match, there was always going to be reference back to Muhammad Ali. Um, and so that, you know, it was all just kind of hearing information trickle down to mm-hmm. me as opposed to seeing something live. Um, I never could, and, and maybe you could fill me in on this if, if you grew up watching him to an extent – um, understand how, why or how he was projected into the political realm, right? Like the president awarded him a medal at some point, and how did all that come? It was the Olympics, right? It had something to do with the Olympics, No, right? it stems from, um, I believe, all of that stems from his conscientious objection status to being drafted 
to serve in the Vietnam okay. War. Okay, okay, yeah, that, that, that clicks. And being stripped in his prime of his uh, championship, heavyweight championship title. This, this was the transition from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali? No, he had already made that okay. transition. Um, so it was in 67 um, that he was stripped. And so that three, three-and-a-half-year period, he prime prime boxing yeah. age for a boxer. Um, he was he was stripped of his his heavyweight title, stripped of his ability to fight, um, and you know lost his court case numerous times and was basically looking to basically go to jail for five years mm-hmm. until the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. And when he had you know when he returned to boxing fighting the the big fights the George, George Foreman, Foreman Ken Norton Joe Frazier you know those those guys um he was already 30 you know in his early 30s yeah. you know what i mean so it was even more of an accomplishment what he did winning the title three times being kind of outside that prime window being outside that prime window because in his in his prime before he stripped his title it was something people have never seen and of course boxing I'm not a boxing aficionado at all, but it was huge. It was big um, as a sport, especially the heavyweight uh, division. Yeah, yeah. And then there was a time when the heavyweight division, after Ali kind of retired, and it was just, you know, it became Larry Holmes after that. But he was, you know, the the division started going downhill, and the welterweight with Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran and those uh, Tommy Hearns and and uh, those guys. kind of carried boxing for a while so but i don't know if it will ever now that um mma has come into play if boxing will ever regain its status like it had back in the 40s 50s 60s and 70s and 80s that makes sense but his uh this is a good story it's similar to malcolm x in terms of a person's evolution in their life, that you know the different segments of their life and how they kind of evolved, mm-hmm. um, and it's that evolution. Not only the you know the standing up, uh, you know he the, the the statements he made is as far as why he wasn't going to submit to the draft are iconic statements. You know I, I ain't got nothing against those Viet Cong and you know why should I go ten thousand miles to fight some other colored people when I'm being treated badly and you know in my own country you know mm-hmm. things of that nature right um and of course he was excoriated at the time you know not wanting to serve his country and he could have done what joe lewis did and just you know do um uh, exhibitions and you know things of that and all of these things were arranged for him you know but his his uh the honesty of his objection was without question so he wasn't going to say he, – well, he was unwilling to say, okay, I'll, I'll just – I'll put the uniform on and just go do exhibitions and talks and so on and so forth because yeah. that's what they had set up for him. Right. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm – I don't want to – He stood on that ground. He that stood decision. on those principles, right. So I think starting with that and then him evolving into the world's most recognized athlete. Mm-hmm. 
most recognized athlete, hands down, um, post his boxing career. Hmm. Who would have thunk it? Right. You know, and then the irony of someone who, uh, for the sake of building up the matches and, 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 and bringing publicity to the matches, you know, very low, formally educated, but mastery of language and prose and poems and, you know, coming off the top of your head, yeah. Um, yeah. giving speeches in front of university students, commencement addresses and so on and so forth. Um, you know, putting all of that together, uh, I'm sure you, I, if you've seen over the last couple of days that iconic photo of him sitting down at the table with Jim Brown on one side. Yes. Bill Russell. Yeah, I've seen it. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Lou Alcindor at the time. Um, some other uh, famous black athletes of that mm-hmm. era. I doubt you would ever see that today. If there was a seminal issue where the athletes would come to get, you know, the top, top athletes would come together and stand behind either someone or for something. Right. To demand that there be a change or what have you. Yeah. No, I, I've seen the photo. Um, I agree. Yeah, we're too, I mean, we kind of live in a hypersensitive era too. And rarely, like you said, are you going to see somebody else standing behind someone for something that could put them in any kind of bad light or tarnish their public image or it, whatever the case not may could. be. It did. It mm-hmm. He lost millions of dollars in earnings and, and, and what have you, but he stood on principle. Well, would guys do that today? And, but, and the thing is, guys already have made their millions. They already got their guaranteed contracts. Right. But still, would they do that? I don't know yeah. if they would. I'm not certain they would either. The closest thing I can think of of it in modern sports. Uh, yeah, that's what it was. A year or two ago, the Clippers, yeah, mm-hmm. when the owner made the, you know, there were like racist statements released and then mm-hmm. they were in the playoffs and they all took off their warm-ups at the same time and they were all wearing a shirt. I forget what the shirt said, but it was some sort of message about them. They weren't going to accept it and mm-hmm. they were united or whatever the case may be. And to get rid of that owner, mm-hmm. the closest thing I could think of a group, even though they were all on the same team, mm-hmm. the difference with this photo, is these are people, figures from their own sport right. coming together right. Right. as opposed to one team right. feeling something. But as the closest I can think of as like a true statement that they could be, Oh wow. You know, you're saying this about a billionaire who owns a team who, who has a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that's a pretty unique photo, pretty unique situation. Yep. Anything else on Mr. Uh, Mr. Ali? Ali? No, rest in peace. Rest in peace. I, my Facebook posting was that he would not rest in peace. Oh, no? Oh, that he uh, a soul like his would be very busy on the other side. Sure. Uh, hey, that could very well be the case. Now, a friend did state... Uh, that uh, no no athlete today can uh, can hold his shoelaces. I said they can't hold his shoelaces, the shoe tongue, the sneaker, <laughs> the jocks, his jock strap. You know, all different parts of whatever parts of the sneaker. I think I named like five different parts of yeah. the sneaker, and then ended it with they couldn't can't hold his jock strap. So, um, very true. Yep. Muhammad Ali. <laughs> 
So what's this with uh, Pumpernickel not being able to participate in the uh, minicamp? Well, this is so just released this morning anyway, according to ESPN, the app. Um, and we don't get paid for that promotion, by the way. Uh, he was just cleared, actually, to begin participation mm-hmm. in off-season workout programs or minicamp. Did he have surgery or something? He did, oh, yeah, okay. two surgeries. Uh, one on a... It was like a finger and then another on hip or knee, something like that. Okay. Um, not serious surgeries, scopes and things of this mm-hmm. nature. But Chip Kelly has still said he's going to bring him along really slowly, really gradually, but he's just now cleared to participate in, in workouts and whatnot. Okay. So that's all, that's all I got. Uh, the only thing I got is, uh, you know, I'm worried about what's happening with the Jets and uh, Fitzpatrick. Their quarterback it's to keep continuity and bad, huh? and um, you know they're not budging from their contract offer twelve million the first year and six million the next two years. Basic, they're giving him a three year twenty four million. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think he wants twelve, twelve, and twelve. What? Oh, I, I don't I'm, know. Athletes are funny. It's the agents, really. Mm-hmm. We should. You know, state that for people who don't follow sports, maybe is in tune as you or I do. <clears throat> this is very rarely the athletes coming out and saying, "This is what I want." Mm-hmm. This is very much the agents pushing for the client that they represent mm-hmm. to get a max dollar figure, whatever that may be. Uh, namely, because the agents get paid on commission. I don't think that's any surprise. But what has Fitzpatrick done to? You don't believe he's worth three years at 12 a pop, do you? I should start no, with that question. What I believe is that the market has already been set because no one's come after him. Right. Right. So if someone would have come after him, Denver, and you know, someone that was looking for, you know, no one came after him. He was a journeyman quarterback before. He just happened to fit in pretty decent with the Jets last year and have a good connection with their receivers, and mm-hmm. you want to keep that continuity going because there is no, as far as I know, no one that they're trying to bring along as the future. So it's right. all about the now. And right. so he's kind of what you would call a serviceable quarterback. If it ain't him, it's going to be Geno Smith, and then, oh, my God. Yeah. and I, <clears throat> And so, again, for those of you who don't follow sports as intimately – Twelve million and then six and six for a serviceable journeyman quarterback is quite a nice, quite a lofty contract. Yeah, I think he's looking at other guys that are in his, you know, that tier, that gray tier, that gray area tier of quarterbacks who've somehow been able to get, right. you know, eleven. Like, uh, what's the guy's name? Sam Bathford. I call him yeah, Bathford. Yeah, good. Bradford, you should. Who got? Who's got twelve and twelve? Right. You know I mean, so. Or eleven and eleven, whatever he got. So I think that's what he's looking at. That yeah, I'm just as good as him, and whatever. Even though Bradford was a first round number one number overall, one overall pick. pick. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we'll see what. That's all I got. We'll see what happens. We'll with see. That. You know, training camp is uh, coming up. That's right. Yep. All right, moving right along. So we were originally scheduled this week to do our our part two. Mm-hmm. Of our two-part series, so continuum of care series. Continuum of care, uh, but I've asked to uh, interrupt <laughs> <laughs> that series for a uh, special announcement. 
about the struggle being real. And it is a, I wanted the opportunity for us to uh, recount a true story that is still being told of what it's like for the majority of people really uh, going through this process. And my chance encounter with someone that resulted in a uh, mini intervention, if you will, that just got me thinking about and reminding me of how tenuous recovery can be. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a story that needs to be told. Names will be changed to protect the innocent, (laughs) of course. I was minding my own business. Okay. It was one of those heavy mental workload days. So normally I would leave the bat cave, head directly to the car, home. <laughs> blinders Blind, on. Blinders on. <laughs> Beeline to hope, the... hope not to be noticed. <laughs> hope not to hear a faint distant call, hey, Orville. None of that. Yep. Okay. Um, but I decided to take a walk through instead and uh, ran into a uh, a former um, person of ours from yesteryear. And just, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a long time. Mm-hmm. Good to see you. And uh, from that conversation uh, came forth the person, and we'll call him Juan Carlos. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> uh, his recent difficulty. And I think we should preface that with this person would ordinarily be considered a success. Yeah, absolutely. From where where uh, they came. Uh, coming through the uh, California Department of, they call it the Department of uh, Corrections Corrections. and Rehabilitations. They don't correct or rehabilitate anything. They might as well just have stuck to the Department of Prisons or whatever they used to call Mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, Down into the local county jail and ending up in OCG. And it's a great story because as a result of this person making the decision and why this is important, this part about making the decision is we all, we've talked over the years, a couple of years that we've been on about how bed space is very limited in this County, especially Mm -hmm. there's only now 125, if that many residential beds in a County of close to 650,000 people. Yep. Okay. And so when you're in the courts, it's it's almost like a, you, it, it's a lottery, but not a lottery in that you put your name in a basket. It's a lottery that you have the a, a PO, a probation officer, and a judge that see something in you, or in your background, or something where they say they want to give you a shot, right? To to change your life because there's not a lot of spaces 
You know what I mean? Right. So they say, hey, we're going we're to give you a shot. And so sometimes you may have to wait some, a little bit in jail or sometimes you don't. Whatever the case may be, you somehow miraculously, out of hundreds of other people, make it to OCG. And this particular person had exterior reasons to be motivated other than any internal reasons. Small child wanting to get back in their life. Um, there was the system involved in that process. Yep, okay. Yep. And you had to march to that system's beat, follow that system's steps and orders before you could resume your rightful role, birthright role of the parent of that child. Mm -hmm. So you had to, you know, they said march to the left, you had to march to the left, march to the right, march to the right, pee in this cup, pee in this cup, pee over here, pee over here. You had to do everything they said. If you wanted to get back the freeness of a free association with your own child, young, 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 young child, at your own discretion. And Juan Carlos did it. Every single thing they asked for, he did. Everything they wanted him to do, he did. Progressed through, found gainful employment. Used to, I remember he used to come back at dinner time. Kind of made me laugh because we used to always joke about you can always come back and eat, and damn it if they didn't come back. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually by the time I was leaving, is around dinner time, and he would be there, and I'd be like, good stuff. You yeah. know? And that in itself, just if you just stop right there, progressing through, finding gainful employment, um, Finding housing, getting yourself stabilized, and all the time from the day one as you, when you came to OCG, working that system to get back involved in your child's life. Okay? Now, we know nothing about the other side of that in terms of the other parent. Two parents, obviously, right? Right, so right. So we're just right. talking about him. So when I ran into him, and it came to pass that he had relapsed. I was taken aback. Okay. I'm never shocked, but I was taken aback. Okay. And I put my briefcase down because I wanted him to walk me through it. Step by step by step on how this happened. And yes, there was some mild interrogation going on. <laughs> Because I wanted to get deep into the belly. The nitty gritty. Deep in there, right? Not for me, of course. I wanted to make sure that he knew how this occurred. Because if you know how it occurred, down to the nitty gritty. Better luck preventing it next you have the You have, exactly, you could see it coming. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so his initial response was, a general response, which was, it was over a relationship. Of course, I wasn't going to let that slide. And I said, well, <laughs> give, tell me more. You know, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I was kind of involved with the baby's mother, and, um, and I was involved with someone else. I said, stop right there. 
Are you saying you were, let's use the term, dating the child's mother, your child's mother, and also dating someone else? He said yes. I said okay, and that and that's mutually understood by everybody. Yes. Okay. Okay. Carry on. And he says, well, um, I found out that. Or my, the baby's mother told me that she was talking to another guy, and I couldn't deal with that. I said, well, walk me through that. You know, what happened? How did you feel when she said that to you? Yeah. And he didn't want to respond. He didn't want to dig. He didn't want to expose the guts. The, the real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I said, come on, Juan Carlos. Come on, man. Let's go there. We got to get there. Yeah. We got to get there. You can't gloss over this and just say, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We got to dig. We got to find out. We got to uproot. And then eventually we'll replant, resob, refertilize, and, you know, and put it back in and then move forward. Throw some water on there and, you know, move forward. And he said, even though he was, quote-unquote, dating or seeing someone else mildly and seeing the child's mother, it was the child's mother who had his heart. Mm-hmm. Did you make that known? No. I didn't make that known. So, he said he was hurt by that. He was angry. Uh, he didn't say he felt rejected, but I imagine that he did. Sure. But was not able to articulate it in that moment, of course. I said, okay, so what happened? And I said, he said, I felt like using. Okay, you felt like using. So what did you do? He said, I got in my car and I went to go cop. I said, okay. While you were driving to the cop man. All right. Boy, you took him there. Okay. Okay. What was going through your mind? Mm -hmm. He said, well, I was thinking about, you know, where I had to go, so on and so forth. And, you know, I said, okay. And when you got there, what happened? He said, well, the dude said that, you know, he didn't have nothing right now. Come back in 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I said, okay, so then what happened? He said, so I waited about 20, 30 minutes, and I went back, and, uh, you know, I went back to the dude. I said, you got anything? And he asked me, he said, I said, first of all, did you know the guy, by the way, that you were copping from? He said, yes, I I did know him. And he said, well, he asked me, he said, you know, where you been? I hadn't seen you in a long time, and he said I was in a program, blah, 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 blah. And then the guy said that he didn't have nothing for me. I said, so wait a second. So he told you first to come back in 20 or 30 minutes. And then when you came back, he said, he started asking you, since you all kind of knew each other, he started asking you where you had been because he hadn't seen you in a while. And you said you'd been in a program and what have you. And then he said to you, I don't don't have nothing. Yep. So I said, let's stop right there. I said, now let's look at what happened here. The universe tried to intervene on two occasions to get you to slow down a second. 
the first time when the guy said, I ain't got nothing for you, come back in 20 or 30 minutes. What did you do during that 20 or 30 minutes? He said, I went and bought some paraphernalia. He said, I went and brought a pipe. Okay. I said, so when you first got the, the first rejection, when the universe first intervened, the first intervention by the universe, you didn't take the time out to reevaluate what you were in the middle of doing. You reinforced it by going out and getting the tools and the equipment and things you needed to carry it out. Yes, that's what I did, he says. Okay. And then you went, you got your equipment, you got your works, you came back, and then you had the conversation with the dude. You found out that you were trying to do something with your life. And he said, nah, I ain't got nothing for you. And basically what he was saying is, nah, man, Juan Carlos, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. We, you don't, don't, we you, don't need you back here. We don't need you back here. I ain't got nothing for you. So that's the universe the second time trying to intervene on your behalf, giving you an opportunity to slow your roll, take a step back. So what happened after that, Juan Carlos? I asked him. And he said, well... I got back in my car, and I went to somewhere else that I knew I could cop. Were you successful? He said, yeah, I bought a 20. I said, okay, and what and what did you do? I said, I went to a little spot, and I put the first rock in, and I lit it up. I said, now, immediately after you took your first inhale and exhale, how did you feel? Excuse me, FCC. He said, I felt like shit. Mm -hmm. I said, I know you did. I said, because if there's one thing that we make sure that we do here in OCG is that we will forever ruin that blissful ignorance and joy you experienced before when you got high. You felt like crap. I said, then what did you do after that? So... You, you were aware at that moment in time after you took that first get high of how you were feeling. What did you do, what did you do next? And he said, well, I said, I, I, I bought it. I might as well finish it. So I finished it. So, okay. Then, then, then what happened? How did you feel? He said, I felt like worse. You know, felt more, this is his words, I felt, I felt like more crap. I said, damn well, you should have. I said, do you, do you see how the universe attempted to intervene and slow your roll, give you an opportunity to take a step back? What am I doing here? Okay. Your, your, your initial answer to me was, I relapsed over a relationship. Okay. But nowhere during that time when you got in your car to drive to the cop man, when the cop man said no, when you had to wait 20 or 30 minutes, when you went back to the cop man and the cop man said, I ain't got nothing for you after he found out what you were trying to do with your life. And nowhere in that time did you think about your child. Nowhere did that happen. He says, yeah, I know. I said, so what, 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 what happened after? Well, I got in trouble, obviously. He was very near to being done with that peripheral system. Very near. Mind you, if I say within a week, he would have been done. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. What did you do after you got high? Well, I went to to you know, using his words, my baby mama's house. And okay, and what happened? He said, as soon as she opened the door, she looked at me and said, "You're high." And she said, "Let me see it." What was she talking about? Let you let her see what? She wanted to see the pipe, and I showed it to her. I said, "Then what happened?" She slammed the door. <laughs> she slammed the door in my face. <laughs> And she went in, made some phone calls, and as a result, you know, I'm I'm back working that system that I was working before, trying to get the freedom to see my child whenever I choose. Mm-hmm. Now, the disturbing part of this mini intervention and interaction. <clears throat> was after he came forth with all of this, he had this air about him, this body language about him, that he was like upset, you know, and angry. But it didn't appear and seem like there was upset and anger at oneself. That it was di- being, you know, it was directed. It was directed somewhere else. And I said, "So, what's all this about? And who's this all at?" And you know, Doug, Doug, Doug. Come to find out, Juan Carlos is upset at the baby's mother because baby's mother made some phone calls, and in his eyes. In his words, drop dime on him. I said, "How dare you? Mm-hmm. How dare you put that on her? Who drove to the cop man? I did, and the cop man rebuffed you. What did you do? You didn't think about little one at that time. You went instead and got your equipment, got your works. You came back to the cop man, had a little conversation. He found out you were trying to do your thing." Little one didn't come into your mind then. You were so laser focused because of your hurt, your pain, what have you, that you, the universe is trying to counterbalance you. You're oblivious to all of that, and you want to put it on her. She did what you were supposed to do, which is she put the child first and said, no, if you're going to choose to do that, if that's going to be more important to you than the child, you can't be around the child. And so I made the uh, the motion with my hand as I was talking to him of like putting a child behind you, yeah, you know, like protecting yeah, the child. I said, right. she put, put herself, put herself in, front, in front between the you, two of you. He said, no, you, you, you can't, you can't, you being, you cannot be high or be involved in getting high and think that you're going to be in this child's life. But he wants to blame her. It's her fault. Well, she didn't have to make those calls. And so as he's uttering that, my energy, the the mental workload of the day is dissipating. (laughs) (laughs) The, 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 The energy of the TC is now coming forth because I can't believe what I'm hearing from this one from Juan Carlos, that he's placing blame on the child's mother for protecting the child rather than looking at what he did. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to 
look and face the reality that it was his actions that have now continued to cause separation and distance from his child. And we didn't state this early on, but during that, when he was going through that whole process of working that system to get that child, to be able to get the freedom of association with that child, it was all about the child. Talked a lot about the child. We saw visits out there with the child mm-hmm. That's weekly. Right. That's right. So the question was a fair question. What about the child? Even if you find yourself in a moment of weakness in terms of your thought, you haven't done anything yet, but you're thinking about doing something that's not in your best interest, you can use and you should use external factors, motivating factors that can help bring you out of it. If I do this, damn, I'm going to lose this. So then I had to start giving him some gut punches and uppercuts. Verbal, of course. Yeah, of course. Verbal. Verbal. But needed. But needed. You know, so first gut punch. You didn't give a rat's ass about your daughter. Didn't give a rat's ass about her because if actions speak louder than words, if you did, you wouldn't have done that. How dare you? You have the unmitigated gall to stand here and try and place blame on the child's mother. You then have the unmitigated gall to say because the child's ex- mother expressed to you, and I dug into this a little deep when he said, when she expressed that she was talking to another guy, that's what threw me off the, you know, off the deep right, edge. Right. And I said, how do you? Play back to me. Say to me how she said it, how she said that. And he played it back to me. I said, now, tell me what she said after, you know, she, you know, knew that you were high and knew that you would, you know, use and blah, 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 blah. And she said, you know, that we can't have this. I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. Now, you know, she's talking to this other guy. What did she say? She said, I love you, but, you know, if this, I can't do this. You know, and so, so how did you receive that, interpret that? And he said, it's over, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, see, that's not how I heard. That's not what I heard her say. That's not what I heard her say, Juan Carlos. What I heard her say is the first thing she prefaced her comments with was, I love you. She didn't say, I hate you, get the F away from me, I don't want you in my life, you're never going to see my child, blah, 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 blah. She said, I love you, but I can't do this unless you're going to commit to doing the right thing. Right. That's what she said. And the fact that she said she's talking, talking, she said talking, I'm talking to another guy, okay, just like you were talking to another yeah. Woman. Yeah. Okay. She said, I'm talking to another guy because there was no, you didn't, you said there was no mutual commitment on and any, any of the talking to's going around and mm-hmm. a lot of talking to, right? There's no mutual commitment. I said, so who are you to A, get an attitude, B, think that if you don't express what you want, if you love her and you want to be with her, you need to open your mouth and make that known. Right. And 
if you wanted to commit to her, then you commit to her and you express to the other one that I'm going in this direction. So, again, you're placing blame and, and you're using misdirection and all, all of this stuff, and you're only fool, trying to fool yourself, and that's not possible. It was very difficult to get him off of, you know, when you're trying to box somebody out. <laughs> yeah. And they're like 60 to 75 pounds heavier than you, and you're trying to get them off the spot. It was very task. difficult to get him off that mental spot he was on that she did me wrong by making those calls, putting me back in a jackpot. Right, right, exactly. No accountability. She should have, she, why did she have to do, and by the way, folks, I'm, I'm actually almost sounding just like he was. Why did she have to do that? Why did she have to jot dime on me like that? I said, Juan Carlos. You're blaming her. She did not pick up the pipe. She did not drive to the cop man. You did. Twice. Twice, twice. <laughs> right. You were rebuffed. <laughs> the universe rebuffed you once, rebuffed you twice. No, three, twice. Three right? he, he, went, he had to go to a third person. That's, that, that's how uh, dedicated you were to accomplishing that goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nothing was going to stop you that night. That's right. So now that you have to experience some consequence as a result of your choices, you want to find someone to blame rather than looking in the mirror. Well, I'm sorry. In OCG, we cannot allow you to get away. All we have are mirrors. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Where else but in our common ground can I find such a mirror? There's nothing but mirrors on the wall. Even though there aren't, there are. It's just mirrors. You can't hide from that. So I kept pounding him, lovingly of course, trying to move him off that spot of blame, deflection, misdirection, lack of accountability, lack of taking responsibility. Because until he moves, and as I stated and wrote, this is an ongoing story, still being written, okay? Until he moves, and he might have by now, off that spot, we can't move forward. We mentally have to move off that spot that it's somebody else's fault. Regardless of what the consequences are, the mother did the right thing. She protected the child. That's right. She prefaced her comments with, I love you. She didn't say, I hate you, you're a bad person, blah, 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 blah. You know, some things that can, you know, that can be said. And, if she, and you know what? If she would have said those things. Couldn't really blame her for it right, at that time. It may not have been the right thing to say, but who could have blamed her? Mm-hmm. Who could have blamed her? But she didn't say that. She prefaced her comments with, I love you. And instead of hearing that. Instead of hearing those words up front, you go to the back of what she said, which is, but I can't do this anymore if you're, going, if you're not going to commit to doing the right thing. Yes, that's a gut punch because you just screwed up. That's right. So, yes, that's a gut punch, and I know that that hurts. But you got to man up. 
And you got to do what we always say. You got to talk about it. And that's what we're trying to do here, right? Me and you are trying to talk about it. This is what I'm saying to him, of course. Mm -hmm. We're trying to talk about it. I'm trying to get you to look a little deeper. Because you can't just walk around thinking, yeah, I I relapsed because, you know, relationships. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You don't get off that. You're not going to get off, get away with that. So, we've said on this show, and we've said, we say numerous times as we talk to clients, that relationships, we say, so in, we say very generally, right, when we're talking, that relations, inability to deal with relationships is probably number one on the list of the reason why people relapse. Mm-hmm. And we're not, we don't just mean intimate. We mean intrapersonal, interper, you know, interpersonal. So it could be friends, family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, mother, right. father, or spouse, you know, you know, intimate relationships. Um, and here is a, as I was saying to him, is a prime example. So you give me the general answer. Yeah, you know, I'm screwed up. You know, I relapsed over a relationship. But in truth, it wasn't the, my hands are in quotes, relationship because number one there really wasn't a relationship okay right um you weren't in a relationship with her y'all did have some kind of relationship because y'all share a child together okay but it wasn't until she expressed that she was you know interested or talking to someone else that your feelings got in such an uproar and you couldn't deal with that And that needs to be acknowledged. And, you know, as men in, in, in men's group, we would say, you couldn't deal with that. You couldn't man up. You were a weakling. Okay. We're saying all this with love, of course. But it's important as men that we say this because you, you, you just – you refuse to get in touch with your feelings. That's right. Is as simple as I can say it. You just absolutely refuse to get in touch with your feelings, and instead you act it out. You act it out. You could have said to her, uh, I, you know, I'm hurt by that you're talking to someone else. And she might have said, well, you're talking to someone else. And then maybe it could have spurred conversation, you know, real conversation. You could have had the opportunity to say how you really felt. I love you. I want to be with you. I don't want this other person, but I wasn't sure. So I'm kind of trying to, you know, ride the fence here, you know, cause I don't know how you feel. You could have had all of these real conversations. My goodness. As long as you spent an OCG, you mean to tell me you haven't learned how to get real? Hard to do. It's hard to do, like you said, and for the guys, like you said specifically, it's important to to do that because it's easy. Not only, like you said, in this individual's circumstance, wanting to point the finger, not wanting to look in that mirror, mm-hmm. because at least in my opinion, and what I see in many residents and male residents in particular. As long as we can point the finger at somebody else, it's so, easy to let anger rule the day. I don't have to look at me. The second I have to look at me, 
anger tends to subside and other feelings come into the picture, and that's that's hard. Mm-hmm. That's hard to cope with. Now I have to feel disappointed in myself or, you know, whatever, a host mm-hmm. of different feelings. Tough to do. If I was to guess, this would be a just an educated guess. The trigger feeling that got him going into his car and down that road was the perceived rejection by the baby's mother. Mm-hmm. I use the word perceived. He probably actually felt it also, but he perceived that she was rejecting him. Right. Okay. And rejection is one of the strongest undercurrent feelings. I call it an undercurrent feeling because it really is oftentimes at the root of a lot of stuff, but it's very rarely unearthed as as the root feeling that is driving everything else on top of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so just like he wasn't able to articulate, I felt rejected, you know, and, and, and I, it hurt like hell and I couldn't deal with that. You <laughs> right. Know what I mean, which would have, maybe you would have shut me up. Doubt it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, who knows? Maybe though. That could carry some shock value. I, would, I, wouldn't, huh? have, I wouldn't have kept them there for an hour <laughs> and a half. <laughs> right. Right. But, um, he didn't say that, so I had to go to get my shovel out and go digging. Yeah, that's right. On his behalf, of course. So, like I said, it's it's a it's an ongoing uh, story, and I think we have a duty to keep our audience informed of how this uh, how Juan Carlos. Uh, moves from this as a real-life example of how you can go from a, a, a period of succeeding to experiencing a relapse, trying to unearth what has, what's at the root of it, recovering from it, and moving forward from it. Now, I think where he's at right now is the relapse is adre- is arrested, meaning that he's 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 clean, he's not That's using. Right. Um, but it's there's still a 25 percent of lack of clarity of, of where he's at emotionally and mentally in terms of his understanding, and and has he moved off of his perch of blame and deflection? And so I will work to uh, find out those answers as a learning tool not only for him but for our audience and others to see uh, where he has progressed because my last words to him as I was walking away was you must get off that spot of blame blaming her and until you get off that spot you will not move forward you might think you're moving forward, but you're not moving forward until you get off that spot. And and even though she's not here hearing all of this, you will owe her an apology. You will owe her an apology. In closing, 
from this experience of this little mini intervention. Mm-hmm. So if a mini intervention lasts an hour and a half, imagine what a, a real, a real a intervention, real, a real serious intervention, be, yeah, being held against your will. <laughs> That's right. I'm not done talking to you. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that I said to him was um, he has to man up in terms of letting her know how he truly feels. Because I asked him, I said, do you want to be with the child's mother or not? And he said, yes, I do. I love her. I said, Why don't you tell her that? Right. So there's no none of these mixed messages and gray areas and, and, and what have you. Why don't you just say that? So at least she knows what you feel. Okay. Then all that's left is for you to prove it. Show and prove. You can make your opening statement. This is how I feel. This is what I would like. Now you just got to go out and walk the walk. And she'll judge you based on what you do. And I said to him, look, I'm not 100% sure. I'm not an expert. I said, but I have just something tells me that that little thing when she said to you, I love you, but and blah, 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 and that she's talking to someone else, that the door, the door, there's still a little bit of light coming through that door. That door has not been slammed shut, double-locked, you know, like the lock from Good Times on the door. (laughs) Click, 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 yeah. You know? Exactly. The door is still ajar, and I think there's some, you know, she's, she's like wanting you to do the right thing and and make some commitment. And you're already saying here you love her, so all of the pieces are in existence. Mm -hmm. Someone has to help them come together. And it seems like you, Juan Carlos, are the missing motion here. The child has been ready. The child has been coming every week to see you for I don't know how many damn years, whatever it was. The child is ready. Child wants to be back in your life. Obviously, you know children are so forgiving. That's and, right. And um, they just recover so fast. From they're resilient. They're resilient, yeah. right? Uh, the mother is willing and, and and wanting. And again, I'm just saying that based on the fact that normally a person wouldn't preface their comment, their statement with "I love you." Of course, right. If you like, I hate you. I hate what you've done to me, my child. Yeah, I get, get <laughs> out of my sight. You know, right. My, I don't want to. You know, you can be in your child's life, but get out, get out of my life. It was none of that. So, we shall have an update. Update in the the, re, the recap, maybe of the next episode. I have a minor update. I don't know if. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I can say that in... Uh, I'll keep it very general so we can f- fill more people in in the next show, but that 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 spot that you were talking about, blocking somebody out, trying to get them off that spot, the spot is no longer... He's, he is no longer on the spot. He's moved off the spot. Okay. And, That's and good to hear. I had to move him off of spot number two. Spot number two for him was 
everything was being focused on himself, mm-hmm. which was good. There was an apology, and it was, I messed up. But he was on that spot for too long. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, okay, it's good that you've accepted that mm-hmm. and that you know that you're in control of your own actions and that this had to do with you mm-hmm. and that you've made amends and you've apologized. I said, now you got to get off wallowing in the victim role. Right. And, woe and, is uh, me. Woe it, is me. Right, exactly. And just as you forgave the individual you needed to forgive, you now need to forgive yourself, learn from what you've done, and now we need to be proactive. The next mm-hmm. spot is just moving forward because mm-hmm. you can only beat yourself up for so long, so the rest of the world will do that for you just fine. That's your next move. Okay. So I know we're past the top of the hour, but I got, I'm sorry. I have a very important question. It, yeah. I hope, and we can find this out for the purposes of, 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 of educating our listeners along this little storyline here. I hope that the forgiveness of the other person was an internal thing for him, not something that he verbally expressed to her. Right. I think that's, that's how it came across. Okay, because if there was... Uh, you know, if Juan Carlos said, you know, you know, darling, there's something I would like to say to you. I, I forgive you for calling, making those calls on me. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Like. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> that would be a problem because that is an underhanded, sneaky way yeah, of saying, shifting the blame yeah, once again. You shouldn't have done this, but it's okay. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> I'll move on. I'll move past it. Right. I can, you know, I can forget about no, it. You know, you did me wrong. You know, <laughs> right. so. It's no, it's an internal thing of accepting responsibility, yeah. acknowledging the right thing was done by her, and how I feel about it is one thing, and you can have that internal forgiveness, meaning I'm not going to hold, you know, blah, 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 because she did the right thing. You can have that forgiveness, but hell no about saying it to her, right? because that's like, again, it's still her fault. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, I just wanted to make make, yeah. make that clear. Absolutely. So this is what we do sometimes. Uh, we encounter this. This is the first time we've actually uh, publicly told a story of a yeah. real live uh, uh, live one. Um, but I wanted his Juan Carlos's experience for whatever reason hit me. You know, just hit me that way and said, you know what? We got to tell that story of Juan Carlos, and it's going to be an ongoing story and update. So, good. That's it. All right. Perfect. Uh, You know, maybe a grander update or more detailed update next time. Yep. But good stuff. All right. Great. Well, um, let's see, we are a little past the top of the hour, but we're still going to drop a little music on you all. We do see that we have some callers on the line who want to participate in the recovery support time part of the show. Uh, we hope you've been enjoying the show to this point, and thank you for being patient with us. We will get to all of the callers as well as a little X-Files on the other side.
up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you.
note right on my monitor. <laughs> was I tried to, tried to, by me tried to, so tried to squeeze it in there real quick. <laughs> I think I got, did I get Roach and Recovery? I think you got Roach. Okay. That was, that was it. All right. And Recovery. Welcome back. All right. X-Files. I'm going to start off with a good question. From Penny, who gave us her last name, which she does not need to do, but no hometown. Why is it so hard to try and mend relationships with family? Usually, not always, just usually, family are the ones who experience the collateral impacts of your addiction. And there's a lot of hurt, anger, rejection, pain that goes along with that, depending on what you may have done during the life. And so when you now are looking to turn your life around, it's all about you first, obviously. Then it's about then mending the relationships. If the pers- if the if you are correct in where you're coming from in terms of wanting to uh, make amends, and sometimes amends can only be made verbally, and then you then have to show and prove through your actions and how you go about living your life and so on and so forth. Because ultimately, oftentimes, it's out of your hands what the other party is going to do or how they may respond and so on and so forth. <clears throat> So things being equal, mending the relationship requires both parties being willing to mend it. It can't be just I'm willing to mend it, but the other party isn't, so it's not going to mend. Okay? And if that's the case, you have to be okay with that and be willing to just continue on doing what you're doing until either the other person comes around or Maybe there are some magic words that you might not have said that you need to say. I don't know. It depends on the circumstance and situation and who it is and what you did, what you might have done. Who knows? But um, the, the, the question, is, so when she says, why is it so hard to try and mend, it, it's hard because it's your family. What was the full question? Why is it so hard to try and mend relationships with family? Mm. The, the answer is in the question. It's because it's your with family. family. Yeah, right. with family. This feelings, emotions, this connectivity, yeah, all, say, all of that is involved. Because the mending goes beyond just kind of like a, for lack of a better term, like a logical conversation. Right. Like with a casual friend where, oh, in human nature, sure, I'm, I forgive you. Mm-hmm. But that is going to be a very different dynamic when it comes to family who, yeah, there's that attachment, that love that, mm-hmm. you know, you can forget about anything logical in that kind mm-hmm. of scenario. Right. People have to feel this. Right. Uh, James from New York. Ah, boo! Are you kidding me? <laughs> we take New York questions on this show? Sure do. <laughs> New York, New York, big city of dreams. 
but everything in New York ain't always what it seems. <laughs> true, true enough. That's courtesy of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, by the way. There you go. Uh, what is it about addiction that makes it so hard to stop? <clears throat> what is it about addiction that makes it so hard to stop? That you're addicted. Another <laughs> another answer within the question. <laughs> the the hardest part is uh, about stopping. More often than not, is not the actual addiction, is the Habitualness to the addiction. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, and th- and that's why. And somewhere in here, I saw a question that we might or may or may not get to. That's why sometimes removing you from your your environment and putting you somewhere else, like breaking that tie, so to speak, right. breaking that connection to the environment and moving you, is a necessary step for a lot of people. Not all, but a lot. Yeah, you have to develop another day-to-day structure. Yeah, in a new new habits exactly have to form, and sometimes you got to just you got to get you out of there. Exactly. <clears throat> to the phones. Let's see who's been holding the longest. Let's go to uh, Mark from San Mateo. Welcome to the show. Hey, howdy. How you doing? Doing well. How you guys doing? Good. Um. So, question I have for you folks is, uh, at what point in my recovery or program should I begin to focus, you know, not so much on what they're asking of me, but more externally, more uh, career, future, you know, kids, the wife, the house, all that, the whole, all that jazz, you know. Without, you know, taking my mind off the things in the program that I need to focus on. So, at what point, after how many how many months, would you say how long? It it's hard to attach a time frame to it because every single person yeah. is different. It's really kind of what I figured. It's really where. At any particular moment in time, if if you've at, at day one, between day one and day thirty, if you've identified the things you need to work on, and how you're going to go about working on them, at some point as time moves on and you see yourself accomplishing those goals, uh, getting to a good space with those things you're working on, then then the attention to those things start to dissipate because you've kind of you know, you got the ball rolling on them and you kind of know what you're doing and what you got to do and how you got to do it. And then you can now broaden. And yes, you, you have to start thinking about other things that have to do with life outside of the treatment environment because you're going to end up there at some point. And you don't start thinking about it on, you know, if, if, if you're doing, you know, 90 days, you don't start thinking about it on day 89. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of automatic in a sense. It has to happen when it happens, when you start thinking, planning, and working on those things or put, trying to put those things together. Whatever needs to happen with those things is when the things directly related to you and your recovery have been addressed and worked on to a point where you can now take them on on your own. You can right. now work them on your own. 
kind of follow what I'm saying? Yeah, no. I'm picking okay. up what you're putting down. Okay. Great. Well, uh, thank you. All right. You're welcome. All right. You guys take care. All right. Bye-bye. Hey. I have to determine once I decide, once it's made known what these are my issues, this is what I got to work on. Yep. And at some point as I'm working through them, you know, you get to a certain point where, I, you know, I can now carry the baton with those mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. I've reached a point where I can now deal where I can work them. Okay. Then your attention can broaden. It has to broaden. And look, start looking at other things and that, that inc- you know, incorporate your life. Because it sure ain't just going to be about being in treatment. Right. And filling the toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's go to um, Stephanie from Stockton. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Okay. Um, my question is... Do the urges ever get better? I mean, as you're in treatment longer, does it ever get easier to not think about wanting to use or not think about just going back out there? Depends. On what? Well, there's a difference between thinking about using and feeling like using. Which okay, one are you well, talking about? More like feeling like using. And what would be causing those feelings? I'm just throwing questions back at you. I guess just thinking that you can go and have conversations with people about it. And even while you're in recovery, I mean, just talking about, like, the past, it just brings up all the, like, you know, the feelings of, wanting to go back out there and use. I guess that's what I'm asking. Does it, as the more time you have underneath your belt of not using, does it get easier? I mean, or is it always going to still feel like you still want to go out there? No, that's, you're not always going to feel like that. But the reason why I asked you the two separate questions, feeling or thought, is feeling is more, feeling is more tied to a person's level of commitment and their progress through the you know their progress through the recovery process so that that eventually dissipates because if i'm committed to not going back into that lifestyle okay there's going to be certain things that trigger me in terms of remembering what i did and so on and so forth and depending on what i may have experienced out there it may trigger feelings and so on and so forth but the key question is, are any of them going to trigger acts? Are they going to trigger me to behave in a certain way? And the more time you get under your belt where it doesn't impact your behavior, it eventually dissipates. But what will never, ever, ever, ever go away are memories. Okay. If you did it, yeah, if you did it, you're always going to remember something that you did. The question is, what context do you put it in? 
So if you if you if you drive past the liquor store that you used to stand out in front of and and cop, and you drive and now you're clean, you're sober, and you're doing your thing, and you drive past it, you're gonna remember that that's where I used to you know stand, hang out and you know do do my thing, but it's not it's a, it's a thought process from your memory. It's not that I, oh I feel like going to do that now. Right. You know what I mean? So you so you after get to a while, that. Okay. Go ahead. I mean, that makes sense. So after a while, the feeling turns into a thought, which makes it easier because you're just remembering you're not. It doesn't, yeah, I mean, I understand that. Yeah, the, feel, the feeling and desire dissipates. If the commitment is there, I have to add that caveat. Mm-hmm. Can't do anything about a person who wants to use and they just, you know, there's, that's just what I want to do. It may be, I'll throw this out there, it may be similar to, uh, like, an old relationship that didn't work out. And so while you're in the relationship, it is what it is. And then right when the relationship breaks off or whatever the case may be, you might be thinking about that individual 24-7. And and there's a lot of feeling and emotion involved there. But the more time you spend away and your life starts to turn in another direction – those feelings just turn into thoughts, like the host was saying. You might, you might see a commercial for a movie that you saw with this individual, or pass a particular restaurant that you've eaten at. But that connection, where the feeling is overwhelming, no longer exists, and now it's just a thought or a memory. But you're not as attached as you were when at the very beginning of that road, so to speak. Right. Well, I never thought of it like that. That makes it easier. Okay. All right. Thank you. Good stuff. Bye. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Great analogy, Mr. Co-host. Yeah, you know, you think (laughs) the next day uh, your world is going to end. There's no way you can survive without the Mm -hmm. individual. Three years later, four years later, it's just a, another name and story. But Mary, it's, Mary who? <laughs> right, exactly. So similar similar kind of deal. Man. All right, let's go back to the X-Files real quick. Um, John from Oakland. How do I disassociate uh, drug use from intimacy? Now, I'm not sure exactly what he means. I have a general idea of what he might mean. If he, When he says intimacy, does he just mean the intimate relationships or does he mean actually having sex with someone, etc.? <clears throat> so if he – we'll answer both real quick. If, he, if it was his experience that he can only participate and be present in a relationship if he was under the influence and now – I want now. I'm trying to be clean. I'm trying to be sober. I'm trying to, you know, do my thing and and and, and be in a relationship without drugs and alcohol, etc. How do I do that? You get just gotta jump in the water and experience it, and then be willing to be vulnerable with whatever feelings you experience. And verbalize them, articulate them, talk about them. There is absolutely, and by the way, this answer applies if it's, has, if it's having sex with under the influence. 
there is no way you're going to get around this without doing it. There are no precursors. There's nothing you can take to make it easier. You're going to have to actually just do it, experience what, what it feels like, and live to tell about it. Any comments, Mr. Host? Co-host? Didn't uh, catch the question was on the screening line there. What was the question exactly? How do I disassociate drug use from intimacy? Oh, okay. So wasn't sure if the person meant uh, just relationship or actually having sex. So trying to cover both. Right. Yeah. Um, making a making a separation between the two essentially. Well, you well, know, I, I thought there needed to be, but. In the end, I don't think there needs to be a separation. No, because either way, I mean, you just have to jump in. And the way I was going to relate it to is like you could, you could make that connection with anything that you experienced in your life while using. Yeah, it doesn't have to be intimacy. Yeah, what is going to sleep at a normal hour and waking up at a normal yep. hour going to be like without using? What is dinner going to be like without having a cigarette after? I mean, mm-hmm. all the things that people might have done. In their addiction, or that that the person who wrote the question has done in their addiction, you're going to have to live the same those same life experiences mm-hmm. with going out with friends, being at social events without using, um, going out on the weekends, going to parties without using, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to continue to live your life and experience all things that you experienced while on drugs, off of drugs. Mm-hmm. Intimacy is a big one because there seems to be a, a large connection with that with folks in addiction that the drugs make either intimate relationships more powerful or a better experience or whatever the case may be. Um, and then if we want to just kind of weigh that out very practically, you could say, let's give the benefit of the doubt and just say, okay, the drugs made intimate moments in your life better mm-hmm. than they will be without the drugs. Let's just assume that to be true. Mm-hmm. We can't have you can't have the good without the bad, so to speak. So then you have to put on a kind of a scale in your own life. Is it worth giving up drugs because it means that my intimate moments may not be as exciting as I remembered them with whatever negative comes from continuing to use drugs versus Having intimate moments without the drugs and whatever positive comes from. But what if they're what if they're it, it was just figments of their imagination? They they just thought it was more exciting and more more wow right. when in fact it really wasn't because you were high. Yeah, and that very well that very well may be the when, case. When in fact the opposite may be true that when you're not high, it's it's wow and it's exciting. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It could be just a figment, and oftentimes it is a figment of your imagination. That's exactly right. Except for musicians, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. The creative genius, if you will. The, mus- the musicians will argue that one to the, to the death. It makes me more creative. I can't argue. I can't argue that. I have no argument for that one. I'll have to abstain from that. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's see. Who else we got here? Uh, Charlene. This is an interesting question from Daily City. 
How can people in recovery avoid being dependent on rehab programs? I actually don't like that word, rehab program, and I've, and I've always avoided using it. Just something about it I didn't like. Maybe, maybe because they use that term for, for prisons, rehabilitation. Um, well, my method of keeping people, uh, preventing people from being dependent on treatment programs is by not allowing them back if they're not serious. Because all they're doing is occupying a space for someone that might be serious. So someone being dependent, quote-unquote, on treatment programs is someone that I guess is just cycling, constantly cycling through and cycling into programs um, like it's a part of, you know, it's like someone being a professional student. You know, they're, they're, they're always in school and always just, you know, what have you. Not that there's you know, nothing negative about that, I'm just saying. But um, so we, we, would, we wouldn't allow people to, to, you know, come in, leave, six months later come back, leave again, four months later come back, leave again. You know, at some point, you know, the door is going to get slammed shut and you're going to be told try such and such program because obviously this one is not the right one for you i liken it to the uh the little old man from shawshank redemption who was so used to being institutionalized that Mm -hmm. when he was finally set free uh he was like i think um hazy on this part of the movie but I don't know, he was bagging groceries and maybe cussed out a customer and intentionally got caught shoplifting or something. He was committing a crime because he wanted to go back to jail because he wasn't used to the free world. Mm -hmm. But the owner of the grocery store where he worked was, you know, because he's like 80 years old at this point or something, and it's like, we know what you're trying to do. Just relax, go home, take the day off, don't worry about it. Like We're not going to press charges, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and in the movie, and the movie is um, fictitious, mm-hmm. but he ends up hanging himself. Yeah. And so it's a blown-up picture, but he was so used to being institutionalized and, and having that be the structure of his life mm-hmm. that dealing with the free world became a huge challenge mm-hmm. that he wasn't ready to conquer. Now, that challenge exists. Mm-hmm. For people who are institutionalized mm-hmm. and maybe they come to a program after having been in jail for X amount of years and adjusting to making the day-to-day decisions that you have to make for yourself mm-hmm. in the free world because decisions are made for you typically mm-hmm. when you're institutionalized, can there can be an adjustment period there for sure. But we, we, we often some experience the opposite also with people who are institutionalized, whereas they are able to, they have no problem with structure, right? you know, getting up when they're told to get up, eating when they're told to eat and things of that nature. They have problem with the more therapeutic part of the program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talking about oneself, being vulnerable, talking about your feelings, things of that nature. I want none of that. I'll go on the back and I'll dig a ditch for eight hours and spend the next eight hours filling it back in. <laughs> They'll do that, but they won't sit at the table and talk about themselves. Right, right. So it works both ways. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They they cope with some of the things that people who aren't used to being institutionalized mm-hmm. that are having a rough time with yes. it. 
is people nothing who, for them. They don't even think stru- about people it. People who aren't used to structure, you know, for the first 30 days, it's like, what? Six o'clock wake-ups? Yeah, when, yeah right. When, exactly. When, when you, you know, you're flipping. So in, in daytop, you know, that's, you know, the purpose of the entry entry unit other than to, you know, just kind of get you prepared for upstate treatment gave you an opportunity to come off of that uh the 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 addict time clock Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know lifestyle clock and get used to a a normal person's clock or the daytop clock whatever you want to call it um can you imagine the shock of you know if you're you know in the life and you're going to sleep at three or four o'clock in the morning, waking up at, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. Um, and, you know, making your making your presence known to the world at five, six o'clock in the evening and it's summertime, don't get dark till eight eight forty five or whatever. And all of a sudden, boom, you go into daytop, you go into treatment, and it, it is six o'clock wake ups. This sort of thing ain't my bank, baby. <laughs> Six o'clock wake ups. I feel sorry for the It's a rough adjustment, yes. But I will book you for not waking up on time. That's right. That's right. You'll learn. All right, let's go to who do we have? So we don't confuse people. Let's go to Brooklyn from Miami. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. you. Pretty good. How are you? Good. So my question I have is, I'm in the fashion and entertainment industry, and at the moment I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, So I host a lot of events, and I'm around a lot of different celebrities, styling them, and alcohol comes up a lot. Um, I I don't have any idea how I'm going to be able to handle being around alcohol and event, events and things of that nature and not cave into it. So where where you are currently, mentally, emotionally, in terms of your recovery, if this would be a significant trigger for you? Yeah. Okay. And my, I mean, as far as my mind being made up about not wanting to drink and um, where I do stand spiritually, everything everything in that sense is in order. I know what I okay. want to do. Um, I, have, I have my head in the right place. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean... I'm determined to get the things in life I want to accomplish. Um, I surrendered my life to God most recently, and mm-hmm. all of that's aligned, but I just, I'm scared to go back into that environment. Okay. okay. That, that's, see, that's what I was waiting to hear, the fear. Yeah. So my question that I'm going to throw at you real quick is, do you want the answer in a nice way or do you want it in a real way? I want it the realest way I can get it. Okay. You got to take that fare and stick it in your back pocket. Yeah. I had to clean it up for radio. <laughs> yeah. The fear cannot dictate what your behavior is going to be. Mm-hmm. 
You acknowledge it like you're doing. You embrace it, but it does not control what you do. If all the other things that you said are true, then all that's left is feelings, whether they be fear, whether they be hurt, whether they be whatever they may be, will not dictate what you do. So you can be at those events and have someone walking by with a tray of martinis or what have you, and you can see and acknowledge what it is and experience what you may think or feel at that moment in time. It may bring back memories. It may bring back you know, experiences. And you can yeah. just, to yourself, acknowledge that and keep, and keep going. Yeah. You're not I think feeding in. You're not. You're not giving it any energy. You're not feeding it. You're just. You're just being aware. To, to be aware is to be alive. So you're right. aware of that. You're aware of what it is. You're aware of how you're feeling, but it's not controlling you. Yeah, I think so a all lot those of other the... things. If all those other things are in place as you stated, mm-hmm. this is just the culmination of it. Yeah. I think a lot of a lot of where my fear stems from is trying to fit in. So when I'm at these events and things of that nature, it's I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it's like it's going to be approached to me and it's something everyone's doing. So I I know that within myself I have the, enough self-tolerance to be able to avoid it and step away from it, but when it comes to what people will think about that or... All right, let me, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Okay. How do you feel about yourself, about the life that you're living now? Um, I'm happy with some aspects of, with some aspects of it um, as far okay. as my... Go ahead. Therein lies the problem. Mm-hmm. See, if your answer to me was, I am in a good space, I feel good about myself, I'm secure and confident with the life that I'm leading, I am doing what I want to do, mm-hmm. then my answer to you would have been, well, your attitude that you should adopt is those magic two words we all used to say when we, before we used to get high, effort. That's the yeah. attitude you would adopt because, in fact, the people in that room would be more interested in you and what you're doing Correct. than the other way around. Correct. They would be like, wow, that's wonderful, that's great, and so on and so forth. And they would have such respect because that's what would be emanating from you. But if you have concerns or doubts or what have you, that's what's going to emanate. Yeah. And someone who sees that and feels that vibe, will be, hey, Brooklyn, want a little vodka here or a little this, a little what? They would think that they can take advantage of that, that weakness. But if a different thing is presented where you're there with confidence about who you are, where you are, and what you're doing, mm-hmm. they, wouldn't, they won't even step to you that way. They yeah. will respect what you're doing and how you're living your life. Yeah. That's what that's what I would want, especially with the fact that 
these are people I, I'll be working with on a daily basis, I would right. I would want that. That respect. comes from you. It yeah. starts and ends with you. And trust me, when you emanate, when that emanates from you, okay, people will respect that. And someone who, someone who, someone who doesn't respect that, they just get the hand. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm not, you know. Don't do that. Yeah. You know, you 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 respect yourself, you defend yourself, you you know you 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 know you stand up for yourself. But generally, ninety-eight percent people will respect you for what you're doing and where you stand. Okay, I agree. Even if you have to act as if. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Yep. I completely agree with you. All right. Thank you for All your time. You. It helps a lot. Thank You're you. You're very sir. welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It always starts and ends with how you feel about yourself. That's right. Starts and ends there. And I love it how you hit them with that because mm-hmm. that's so true. If you're beyond comfortable but confident in who you are and the decisions that you make and the way you choose to live your life, you exude that. Consciously and subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's funny it is, <clears throat> excuse me, 99% of the time, because that is emanating through you, you may not even be put in those positions as often as you think because people are just going to pick up on that. Mm-hmm. And in the rare chance that you are, if you are indeed genuinely satisfied with the decision you make and grounded as to why you made those decisions not even a thought like you said it's the uh the old heisman <laughs> yeah, the old heisman stiff arm it's that is what it is and you keep yes. it moving step to the side that, step to the side that's it don't even bring that over here that's it so all right let's go to uh how are we doing on time sir we're doing well we have about nine nine ish minutes okay all right let's go to uh jack from san mateo welcome to the show hi how you doing? Good. Good. Um, so my question would be something along the lines of why is it important to hold others accountable for their actions um, as opposed to just trying to hold yourself accountable for your own? Do you plan on do you, do you plan do you live in a vacuum? Uh, no, I don't believe I do. No, you got friends, right? You got loved ones. Yep. You're going to be around them. People are going to be doing things that you may not like. And there may be times and places that are under your control, your car, your apartment, your home, what have you. And you set the standards and the laws of, of how things are going to be in those environments. And you must be able to say to those people, I'm sorry, I can't accept that in my house. I don't allow any smoking. I'm sorry, I don't allow any chocolate eating in my, chocolate cakes in my house. I'm sorry, I don't like vanilla ice cream. That's, that's not allowed in my house. Whatever it is, you have to be able to say it. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yes, I get that. Yes, it starts with you first, holding, holding yourself accountable, but that's also holding yourself accountable when you're able to hold other people accountable that are in your inner circle. That are going to impact you. 
Yeah, I hear people, you know, I, I, I agree. I'm just, I hear people say a lot um, when you try to hold them accountable, you know, or even other people who are not trying to hold them accountable, they'll say, why don't you just focus on yourself? And uh, your answer should be, I am. Yeah. I am focusing on myself by holding you accountable. Because what you do affects me. Because we're in the same area. We're in the same home. We're in the same car. We're in the same room, whatever it may be. All right. I get that. It has to be practiced and, you know, it has to be drilled home so it becomes second nature so that you can, you know, not accept anything in your environment that you don't believe is in your best interest. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I get it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So that's that difficulty that people experience we practice in the treatment environment. Mm-hmm. We try and say that's this is the proving grounds where you practice holding yourself and holding others accountable. And why do we do that? You know, what's what's that going to do? Blah 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 blah. And we always try and project it out into the real world, where you're going to be, who's going to be around you, who's going to have access to you, who's going to be a part of your circle. And not everyone in your circle is going to be you know, automatically abiding by your newfound standards and, 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 and rules. True. You know, you may change. I mean, the world has changed. That's right. Okay. So, but for where you have your sphere of influence that you control, I control my car, what happens in my car, except when my wife is in there. <laughs> um you have to be able to say, and this is and this is what I I did say. Look, I'm sorry, I don't allow smoking and no eating, no drinking, because <laughs> I'm not. There's no going to be garbage left behind. That's because I'm a neat freak. But you have to be able to set where we're heading here, the boundaries. That's right. And enforce them. That's right. That's the method to the madness. And I think people miss that in the just in the daily, you know, of uh, we say you, you know you hold your peers accountable and so on. Well, what's the what's the ultimate end game in that? And we have to right. keep reminding them. It's yes, not. Well, yeah, it's, it's really not about you know pulling them up because they didn't uh, you know refill the toilet paper. I don't know what my fixation with toilet paper is today, but I uh, don't read it. Read it yeah, I won't ask. I won't but, ask. Uh, <laughs> Maybe because there were so many pull-ups during my day about the, yeah, yeah. you know, you had a lot of people going into the bathroom at Swan Lake, so That's they went right. through a lot of toilet paper. Um, but trying to constantly ram that that home, that process, it's an ongoing thing. Indeed, it is boundary setting yeah. again and again and again and again. Yep, it it's easy to get caught in the 
monotony of the day-to-day that will happen in a residential-type facility because it's going to feel like, boy, we're asked to do so much and without slowing down to really take a look at what's behind certain things, mm-hmm. like I could scratch my head about what's the point of doing this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. There's like a thousand things that happen here daily that I don't see any correlation with my own recovery going, mm-hmm. but you take the time to pump the brakes, slow down, and, and look at, well, what am I practicing when I do this act, and how is that applicable? Everything has a purpose. Mm-hmm. That's one of them right there is the boundary setting all the time with the people that you surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. It's necessary. You take one unscreened, I mean, it's about that time. Whenever we dip into less than 10 minutes, we're taking risks. We're going unscreened phone calls. How much time do we have? You have like two minutes for one phone call. All right. Let's go with uh, the one holding the longest. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name and hometown, please? Uh, Breezy, San Jose. Hi, Breezy. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. How can we help you? Um, I had a question. Um, so I've been sober almost five months, and I'm in a recovery home, and I find myself um, still, like, um, quite often, like, looking at my veins and stuff, and I'm wondering, like, is there any th- advice you can give me to, like, escape my obsession? Well, how do you know it's an obsession? Well, because I just say I'm constantly looking at my veins and like, and then when I think when I'm looking at my veins, I I think oh that's a good entry point, and you know I then I think about you know slamming dope, and um, I it's just it's 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 a lot, I think about it a lot. So when when you look at your veins, you don't think about the negative things you experienced. Right, I think about the high. That's not good. <laughs> no, it's not. And the reality, and, and we, we have to be real here on this show, especially when we're up against the time limit. Yeah. He's going to have to hit you with it. When, when, yeah, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you look at a trigger or something, anything that gives you a memory of something you used to do, and mm-hmm. you don't look at it and say, hey, that was a negative thing or that was a negative experience, but you look at it the other way, mm-hmm. that's not a good sign. Right. We got to flip that around. And, and look, when, we, when we look at a vein and we see how bad our skin is on that spot, say, that reminds me of that bad stuff I used to do. I don't want to go back there anymore. That's where you need to get. Okay. Okay. You have to get there because if you see good times and fun in the sun when you look at that vein, that's not good. Right. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering, like, is there is will that obsession ever end? I think the obsession is stronger than my cravings, but the obsession is what brings the cravings on. I can't give you I can't give you an answer to that in probably ten seconds before the producer okay. can really cut me off. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Call back. Tell okay. Him, call back. Call back okay. on our next show a couple of weeks, and we can we can take you on first, and hopefully give you some more dig a little deeper. On yep. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's it, man. I'm not letting you cut me off this time either. So what do you got to say? Say it quick. That. 
I used to tell people in treatment all the time when you, you know when you, when you, you people used to start getting high by smoking marijuana first and then move on to other drugs. And I would say when you smoked marijuana, you was all fun and you know going to the beach and having a good time and so on and so forth. I said you got to move to when it became not a good time and it wasn't fun in the sun when you were in your darkest moments. Yeah. That what's the connection has to be when you think about those things. It's true. Cannot separate them. Can't have one without the other. Yep. All right. Well, we are definitely up against it. We'd like to thank everybody who called in and participated in our recovery support time, as well as folks who called in just to listen and the listeners that we get from other means. All the support is truly appreciated. Uh, we will be back two weeks from now, and we will be doing the part two of our two-part series of the Continuum of Care if you care to listen to a show at any point between now and then, we have an archive full of them that you can check out at any time. We hope everybody has a safe couple of weeks and a couple of fun weekends. We will talk to you all in two weeks.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCG Work CA and on Twitter 